What is going on, Solo fam? My name is John Solo, and this is Messed Up Origins, the show where I break down the astonishingly dark history behind the world's most famous children's stories. Today, we're talking about the history of Disney's most controversial film of all time, Song of the South. Now, for those unfamiliar, Song of the South was released by Disney back in 1946. The plot follows a little boy named Johnny who's spending his summer on his grandma's plantation in Georgia. While he's there, he makes friends with Uncle Remus, the real star of the movie. He's a legendary storyteller who loves sharing the hijinks of Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox with the children who live on the plantation. What ensues is honestly a pretty boring series of events where Johnny repeatedly gets into trouble or comes close to it, and between those incidents we're treated to some gorgeous animated sequences where Br'er Rabbit finds himself in similar situations but manages to think his way out of it. At the end of the film, Johnny is run over by a bull, yeah, a bull, but he's cured through the power of Uncle Remus's stories. As for why the movie is so controversial, there is a plethora of complicated reasons that we'll get into, but to put it simply, its portrayal of African Americans and their role as slaves on plantations is considered to be in very poor taste. Now you might be wondering, John, why are you talking about this now? It's a pretty heated time to be doing this given the news. Like all of the news. True, but as you may or may not have heard, given that there has been a lot of news these past few months, back in June, Disney announced that the iconic Splash Mountain ride will be getting a modern makeover and rethemed after their 2009 film, The Princess and the Frog. When it comes to my opinion on this, I have a few. Mostly, I think it's cool, because I always felt like Princess and the Frog came out and then was immediately pushed to the side, so I like that it's being brought back into the spotlight. I'll wait to share my more nuanced perspectives until later in the video. With that announcement, though, I felt like now would be a good time to explore the history of Splash Mountain, the movie that it's based on, and the stories that inspired the movie. You've got a ton of fun and not so fun facts coming your way, so let's just jump into it. Chapter 1, Splash Mountain. So before we get into Song of the South, let's talk a bit about Splash Mountain, because you've got to admit that it's weird Disney's continue to let this monolith of a ride operate in its current form when they consider the movie it's based on to be so taboo that it's literally never had a home release in America. Other countries have had their own VHS releases at least, but if any Americans ask about it, it's locked away deep in the Disney vault. So deep that Bob Iger, the former Disney CEO, said it would never appear on Disney Plus because it is not appropriate in today's world. So again, if the movie is so goddamn insensitive, why was the ride built in the first place? I mean, it didn't even open until 1989, and the last time the movie was shown in theaters was in 1986 for its 40th anniversary, so Disney has literally kept the film behind lock and key throughout the entirety of the ride's life. Well, to answer that question, we have to journey back to the 1960s when Disney was in the process of constructing a ski resort in California. This was years before Disney World ever opened. Walt and his Imagineers were planning to have a show at the resort where animatronic bears played some kind of music. However, when Walt passed away in 1966, the plans for the resort fell apart. Meanwhile, the Imagineers, who knew how excited Walt was for the bear show, moved it over to Disney World in time for the park's grand opening in 1971. And believe it or not, the show was incredibly popular with the park attendees, so much so that the Imagineers quite literally doubled down on it during the construction of California's Disneyland and Tokyo Disneyland. They actually constructed two venues in each of those parks where the shows could go on simultaneously and entertain twice the amount of people. Not only that, they built an entire section of the park that was themed after it, 
Bear Country. The problem was, people eventually got bored with the show, and due to a lack of other attractions there, Bear Country became Disneyland's ghost town. Now while this was going on, there was another animatronic show featuring animals over in Tomorrowland that was also losing steam, America Sings. It was originally built to replace the Carousel of Progress and to celebrate America's 200th anniversary. But the special occasion came and went, people lost interest, and the show was suddenly very out of place in the section of the park that was dedicated to the future. Cut to Imagineer Tony Baxter sitting in California traffic. He's suddenly very motivated to repopulate Bear Country and find a way to repurpose the animatronics from the outdated America Sings show. He presents the idea at work, and Dick Nunes, the executive vice president of Disney World and Land, insisted the new attraction be a log loom ride to mixed reactions. For whatever reason, he was really feeling this idea, though, so he ultimately won the argument, and the Imagineers needed a movie that would be suitable for a log loom, make use out of the animatronics, and fit the Bear Country theme, though it was now being rebranded as Critter Country. Enter Song of the South, which features a number of animals that sing and dance. They simply redress some of the America Sings characters, made them more suitable to the southern setting, and then special made animatronics to fit the main characters from the movie. And check this out, in 1987, two years before Splash Mountain was even finished, it had already cost Disney around $75 million. For some perspective, if all of Disneyland was built in 1987 instead of 1955, it would have cost $80 million. So this one ride was about as expensive as the entire park. One of the only reasons it wasn't was because because they repurposed the animatronics from America Sings. Which is why there's a giant boat at the end of the ride full of singing animals that have nothing to do with the film. But now that you know why Disney built a $75 million monolith based on the movie they're most ashamed of, let's talk about that movie, shall we? Chapter 2, Song of the South. So, Song of the South. What is it, and why is it so controversial? Well, like I said earlier, the setting alone is enough to raise some eyebrows. It takes place on a plantation down in Georgia, but there's way more to it than that. The primary issue that people have with this movie is its portrayal of African Americans, but it's not just what the movie shows, it's what it leaves out. What I mean by that is the way Disney chose to depict the South is incredibly sanitized. There's no mention or even subtle references to the politics of that time or America's muddy history, which is heavily connected to the ideology that dominated the Southern part of the country. For example, instead of making the relationship between the blacks and whites perfectly clear by saying this woman owns the plantation and these are her slaves, or even these people aren't her slaves but rather her employees, they leave it totally ambiguous. Not only that, but they don't even establish when the movie takes place. We know it's sometime in the 1800s, but we're left guessing whether it's before or after the Civil War. It's worth noting the books all take place after, but the movie never clarifies. Now you may be thinking, that's pretty typical for Disney. They'll sometimes make political references, especially recently with that ridiculous part in Ralph Breaks the Internet with the princesses. And now for the million dollar question. Do people assume all your problems got solved because a big strong man showed up? Yes! What is up with that? She, she is, is a princess. princess! But with that being said, most of the time their stories take place in a magical land far, far away, so omitting politics is hardly even noticeable. It feels a little different though when the movie is set right in the middle of one of the darkest times in America and there's literally no mention of it. There is an ambiguous reference to the public apparently not liking what Johnny's dad writes in the Atlanta newspaper, but we never even get a hint about what that is. So with those details being excluded, we're left to infer about the way this plantation operates, and the limited context clues that are available 
available to us don't do Disney any favors. Many of the white people talk hyper-properly like they were transported there from the Victorian era. Meanwhile, the blacks speak with thick southern draws that make them sound uneducated. We get this weird imagery of the workers walking to the plantation in the morning and away from it at night, all while singing soulful church music. And the workers live in pretty dilapidated housing on the edge of the property instead of having decent homes of their own. Now you may be wondering, what's so bad about not making that relationship clear? Don't you think that it's better that in a movie made for children, they don't label an entire group of people as slaves? I'll admit that argument definitely carries some weight. However, without that clear-cut label, what we're left with is that group of people being portrayed as not only subservient to the other, but also totally happy about it. Because like I said, the movie doesn't just take place on any plantation, it's an idealized version of it. To quote Matt Singer, who wrote an incredible article on why the film is so problematic, it's a ludicrous utopia where blacks and whites live in harmony. A harmony where the only thing that's clear is that the blacks are inferior and servile to the whites, but are content to work the fields anyway. Even the stories that Uncle Remus tells, which are the animated sequences interspersed throughout the film, add to this odd sense of complacency the black characters have about their role on the plantation. We'll get into the details of those stories later, but basically the morals can be boiled down to you can't escape trouble no matter how hard you try, and there's no place like home. On the surface, these aren't controversial lessons, and to be honest, I actually agree with them, despite hating where I'm from. But again, these messages get tainted when they're coming from what appears to be slaves because it seems like they're just resigning themselves to this horrible fate instead of fighting for lives of their own. But the controversy does not stop there my friends. After all, both the live action and animated sequences were inspired by a series of books that was written around the same time the movie takes place in, and that's what we're talking about next. Chapter 3, The Birth of Uncle Remus. Now, like I said, Song of the South and the character of Uncle Remus didn't just come out of nowhere. Disney based the movie on a very popular series of books written by Joel Chandler Harris back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The series follows a character named Uncle Remus, a former slave who loves to tell stories about Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and the rest of the Br'er gang. A bit of trivia for you, the word Br'er is actually supposed to represent how the word brother is said in the Southern dialect. Now, for those who don't know, Br'er Rabbit was not an invention of Harris's. He is an actual character classified as a trickster hero featured in numerous African and African-American folktales. I separate those because there are some differences. For example, in certain parts of Africa, Br'er Rabbit is replaced with a trickster spider called Anansi, but the stories they're featured in are almost identical. Br'er Rabbit typically gets himself into some kind of trouble in every tale he's featured in and gets himself out of it using his brains instead of his brawn. That being said, Rabbit's troublesome behavior behavior means he's not always the good guy. There's some stories where he's the villain. You can think of him as an example of what to do and what not to do. We'll break down some of his most famous stories in the next section, but first a little about Joel Chandler Harris. Where did he hear these stories and why did he take it upon himself to record them and publish them for the world to see? Well, you're probably not going to like this part, but when he was young, Harris worked on the Turnwold Plantation down in Georgia. And during his time there, he became close friends with many of the slaves, which exposed him to the tales they told each other for entertainment the ones about Br'er Rabbit and the gang. Years later, in 1876, when Harris was working for the Atlanta Constitution newspaper, he made the character of Uncle Remus for a column he was writing and based him on actual slave Uncle Bob Capers, who told him the majority of the stories. At one point, Harris realized the value of those folktales that he had stored in his head over the years, and in 1881, he published his first collection containing 25 of them called Uncle Remus, His Songs and Sayings. These stories were met with widespread praise, not just in America, 
but also around the world, and over the next few decades, Harris continued to publish collections of the African and African-American folklore that he was so familiar with. In total, six Uncle Remus collections were published during his lifetime, and three more came out after he died. They contained 185 Br'er Rabbit stories combined. Now, before we get into the Br'er Rabbit stories they share in the movie, I want to explain why these books were such a big deal. Well, for one, this was the first time that African and African-American folklore had ever been put into print. Not only that, it was also the first time that anyone had ever accurately captured the dialect of a Southerner, specifically an African-American from the South. You see, at that point, most of the people in the world had never heard a Southern accent. Lucky them. So with the book being such an accurate representation of not just the dialect, but also the culture, it was an exciting way to expand your worldview. And also the stories were pretty entertaining and totally different than most Western literature, which typically followed one character for one adventure, as opposed to the same characters carrying over. Speaking of, I say it's about time we look at some of those stories. Chapter 4, The Adventures of Br'er Rabbit. Now I hate to disappoint you guys, but unfortunately we don't have time to go over all 185 Br'er Rabbit stories that Harris had published. That being said, we are going to cover the three stories that Uncle Remus shares with Johnny in the movie, which just so happen to be the same stories that you see unfolding on Splash Mountain. The first of which is called Br'er Rabbit Earns a Dollar a Minute. In this one, the trickster gets trapped in one of Br'er Fox's snares. In the movie, he stumbles into the trap while he's running away from his troubles at home, something that's also portrayed on the ride, but in the book, it's because he's stealing peanuts from Br'er Fox's garden. After hanging there for a while, he notices Br'er Bear approaching and tricks him into thinking that Br'er Fox is paying him a dollar a minute to be a scarecrow for the garden. Having made enough money though, he generously offers Bear the position, he gleefully accepts, and takes Rabbit's place in the trap. By the time Br'er Fox gets there, Rabbit is long gone, and he's furious at Br'er Bear for being fooled so easily. Once again, you'll recognize this scene from the ride. Now this next story, called Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby, is by far the most controversial of the three. In it, Br'er Fox sets a trap for Br'er Rabbit by molding a fake person out of tar and setting it on the side of the road. Br'er Rabbit is hopping along and greets the tar baby as he passes, thinking it's a real person, but he mistakes it not responding as an insult. He starts to get angry, punches and kicks the tar baby, and winds up getting himself stuck. Eventually, Br'er Fox reveals himself as the mastermind behind this trap and wonders out loud how he should kill Br'er Rabbit. Using a bit of reverse psychology, Br'er Rabbit says, Roast me, hang me, skin me, drown me but please, oh please, don't throw me in the briar patch, which for those who don't know, is a mass of thorny shrubs. Fox falls for the bait and chucks Rabbit deep into the thicket, believing that'll cause him the most pain, but it turns out rabbits are actually pretty comfortable navigating through briar patches, so he escapes. Fun fact, the giant drop on Splash Mountain represents this exact scene. When it comes to why the story is so controversial though, that's because of the tar baby, which has some questionable imagery. Not to mention that term can also be used in a derogatory way. Disney wanted to avoid including any details that could be deemed offensive, so for Splash Mountain, they replaced the tar baby with a beehive. Now the third and final story Uncle Remus tells Johnny is called The Laughing Place, and it plays out pretty similar in the book and movie, but the ride actually combines this story with the one that we just talked about. Confusing, I know. Basically what happens is Br'er Rabbit is caught by Fox, again, and to buy himself some more time before he gets eaten, he starts to laugh. <laughs> Br'er Fox wants to know why he's laughing in the face of certain death, and the rabbit says it's because he just visited his laughing place. 
place. Out of curiosity, Fox allows Rabbit to lead him to his laughing place, which as it turns out, is actually a cavern full of bees. He and Br'er Bear end up getting stung to pieces, and Rabbit makes an escape. At least that's how the movie and story go. On the ride, however, Fox manages to turn the tables and, after getting stung, traps Rabbit in the hive. And as if that wasn't confusing enough, the end of the first story we told, where Rabbit goes back home after realizing he can't run away from his problems, is shown at the end of Splash Mountain to give it a happy ending. So those were the three stories Uncle Remus told in the movie, but there's about 180 more of those you can look up if you're feeling curious. In the meantime, we've got one last section to go. Chapter 5, Analysis and Conclusion. Now you're probably thinking at this point, John, we've talked about the movie, the ride, and the stories. What else could be left on the docket? Well, remember how at the start of this episode, I said I have some nuanced opinions about the movie and the ride being renovated? I wanna share those now that we're all more familiar with Song of the South's origins. And just to be very clear, I totally understand why this movie is considered problematic and why Disney is so hesitant to share it with the public. I mean, it's not even just today's society that found the film insensitive. There's records of people protesting its portrayal of African-Americans when it opened in New York back in 1946 and every time it re-released after that. So when it comes to picking a hill to die on, releasing Song of the South to the public is not the one I'm gonna go with. That being said, I do think there are aspects of it worth celebrating. For one, James Baskett did an amazing job playing Uncle Remus. His interactions with the children are adorable, his narration and storytelling are fantastic, and his performance of Zippity Doo Dah is top notch. It sucks that he put so much effort into this role, a role that he won an honorary Oscar for, and almost no one has seen it. The movie's animation is also incredible for the time period and no doubt took some painstaking attention to detail from the artists to make it look this good. It represents a big step forward in the world of animation, so again, it kinda sucks it's hidden away from the general public. What I find to be the biggest bummer though is that Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Bear are iconic parts of African-American folklore that most people still don't know about. I mean, I've been making videos about Disney and fables for almost three years now and this is the first time I heard anything about their place in folklore. So with that in mind, Splash Mountain is the only exposure that anyone has to these almost forgotten characters that at one point were a big part of African American culture, and in a way, it's a monument to that culture. So it's sad that in a few years they're going to be gone. Now there are some valid counter arguments to this position, the biggest being that Joel Chandler Harris collecting these stories and using them to turn a profit can be classified as cultural appropriation. To be totally honest, I disagree with how that term is used about 99% of the time, but in this instance, it's undeniable. It's also worth noting that Harris thought there was a certain romantic beauty and tenderness to slavery, so it's extra fucked up that he profited off the culture of people that he had no problem enslaving. Even still, to me personally, it feels weird that Disney is putting these characters that actually come from an often underrepresented culture on the chopping block in favor of a story that they decided to incorporate that same culture into. I hate to make this comparison, but it gives me the same vibes as making February, the shortest month of the year, Black History Month. To me, it comes across as a symbolic gesture that makes them look good as opposed to a legitimately thoughtful one. I know that because I am a very white dude, some people will say that my opinion on this matter isn't worth much, but I think it would be cool if instead of renovating the entire ride, they put some learning stations throughout the waiting line to shed some spotlight on the origins of these characters along with Uncle Remus and some acknowledgement about the controversial circumstances they were created in. Then they could give Princess and the Frog a whole ride of its own. That's at least how I feel about it right now. 
thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. Thank you.